0: Open with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. The church has two movements. The church gathers. We come in and we gather around the gospel to sing the word and hear the word and praise God for the word and hear it preached. And the church scatters. We come in and then we go out. Having gathered, we go out with the gospel. Well, in today's letter, Jesus will commend a church that is doing a great job on both fronts. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, in the past week or so, there was headlines of a popular band's front man who committed suicide. His name was Chester Bennington, and he was famous for harsh and angry songs. Also famous for uh, particularly honest and vulnerable lyrics. As an unbeliever, writing as an unbeliever. He wrestled with addiction and depression for much of his life, I've learned. Here's from his very last interview as he reflected on one of the songs that he wrote, even just more recently, called Heavy. I don't know if anybody out there can relate, he said, but I have a hard time with life. And no matter how I'm feeling, I always find myself struggling with certain patterns of behavior. I find myself stuck in the same thing that keeps repeating over and over again. And I'm just like, how am I in this? I know that for me, when I'm inside myself, when I'm in my own head, this skull between my ears, that is a bad neighborhood. And I should not be in there alone, he said. I can't be in there by myself. It's crazy in there. This is a bad place to be by myself. And if I'm in there, I don't say nice things to myself. There's another Chester in there that wants to take me down. And I find that, whether it's substances or behavior or depressive stuff or whatever, if I'm not actively getting out of myself and being with other people, like being a dad, being a husband, a bandmate, a friend, helping someone out, if I'm out of myself, I'm great. If I'm inside all the time, I'm a mess. I think for a lot of people, they think if you're successful, all of a sudden you get some card in the mail that says you're going to be totally satisfied and happy for the rest of your life. Well, it doesn't happen like that. And that was just this past May. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 10:14. How then can they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, the church in Philadelphia was doing a good job of preaching the word. And Jesus commends them for their ministry. He has no words of critique here, only commendation. A commendation focused around the great commission that he gave them. The great commission that he wanted them to fulfill. And that he gave promises to them like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Like, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Like, all authority has been given to me from heaven. And he goes with this church, and they're going with his gospel. Well, let's begin, as we've begun each letter, by entering the city of Philadelphia. A gateway city. Verses 7. Verse 7. Those of you following the Brooks family on Facebook on their way to Utah will know that they were snapping pictures of every state line. They'd even catch the sign. If you followed me on Facebook across the country as I moved here, the only sign I caught was the Batcave sign. I thought that was amazing. And since I got here, people say, so what surprises you about South Carolina? What's different? And uh, I thought of this last night. My new response will be these people don't think that having a sign that says Bat Cave is amazing. (laughs) Apparently, it took some of you a little bit to figure out why I thought that was so cool. Well, if you're driving across the country and you're like me, you're probably sedated, uh, just in an absolute trance, catching only the signs that you must see, Uh, except St. Louis. In St. Louis, you'll know when you've crossed from one state to another. Most of these state signs appear in the middle of a woods or whatever. You'd never know you're crossing a state. But there is St. Louis on the edge of Missouri and Illinois. And there's a big arch there. They call it the Gateway Arch. And that was built to draw attention to St. Louis as that gateway to the west, as the United States and America was spreading westward. That's why the Greeks built the city of Philadelphia. It's at an intersection of three countries. It was a gateway from Europe to the east. It was on the outer edge of modern civilization at the time. A missionary city built to spread Greek language and Greek food and Greek art and Greek language and Greek gods and a Greek view of the world past, present, and future. Every culture and people evangelizes, by the way. We enlarge the reach of the things that we believe. And it's actually one of the tests of what we actually believe. The kinds of things that we desire to and give great energy to spread. We want the world to look and feel a little more like we think it should. And it would be better for feeling and looking. Even those whose core belief is a commitment to pluralism, a commitment to no one God, for example, seek to spread that commitment to Well, Philadelphia was a missionary city, a city for the spread of Greek culture, a city of opportunity. It was also a city of great insecurity. It was a city on the edge of a volcanic region. If you tried to plant something there, it would grow and grow and grow, and you'd sell it and become wealthy, and so this was a wealthy region, fertile soil. But if you tried to build something there, it might fall and fall and fall. Earthquakes were common. You can imagine great stone pillars in the temple shaking and then the roof buckling underneath the pillars as they came down. Your name might have been inscribed on a pillar. There were names etched on these pillars as though to immortalize you, but an earthquake would take it down in a moment. At any tremor, the city would empty out People were constantly going out and coming back in and going out and coming back in. I grew up in a region where there were tornadoes and they would tear through the area, and we'd all go down in the basement. It was a walkout basement. I remember Dad out there on the porch, uh, you know, watching the sky and the trees wrestle around, and Mom and the kids uh, in the corner in the other room. Uh, That was a part of our life, the sirens and the racket outside and you go to the basement. Well, a part of life in this community would have been going out and coming back in. Not going to the basement, but going out to the open fields where you'd be safe in the event of an earthquake. Only decades before John's letter, they were hit so hard that the Roman emperor waived their taxes and dumped a ton of money into the city to help them rebuild. And so in thankfulness, they even named their city Neo Caesarea, which means the new town of Caesar, which leads to another feature of this place. It was a city of culture-spreading opportunity. It was a city of structural insecurity, and it was a city of religious intensity. A town that got a new name, the town of, new town of Caesar, won't be terribly friendly to those who refuse to worship Caesar. Think of it. Where would the city be apart from Caesar? Still in the rubble. You'll remember Smyrna, where the lives of Christians were threatened because of the allegiance of that place to Caesar. Well, too, in this place, the lives of these Christians were threatened for the same reason. A gateway city at the edge of the world and home to a small church at the edge of heaven bearing Christ's name. What does Jesus show them of himself? We've been exploring Philadelphia, a gateway city, and now we're seeing Jesus' key. Seeing Jesus' key. The rest of verse 7. And to the angel of uh, of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open kids you know all about the keys you watch them and you take them kids are all about the keys i had a full ring of keys when i was a kid they represent a kind of exclusivity without the key you're locked out but with the key you can get into things and this is the key that's in jesus hands what's it doing there and what does it do Well, for background, we need to consider the book of Isaiah. Don't turn there, but in chapter 22, we learn about a servant named Eliakim. Eliakim was a steward in the palace of the king. And of him, the Lord says, He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And he, Eliakim, shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. He is given the key. And when he opens, the door is open. And when he shuts, it shuts. Eliakim, the steward of the father's house, is the key. And Jesus is saying... That's me. Jesus has the keys and decides who is in and out. There is no entry into the presence of God, into the kingdom of God by force. There is no entry by bribe or manipulation. There is no entry by some secret way in the back. There is only entry by Christ and through Christ alone. And this is why Christians say that there is only one way to heaven into God's presence. There is only one way because there is only one Savior with the key to the presence of God. There is only one who can say, as we read in Revelation 1, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friend, you must show up at the door with the one who has the key to the door. There's no getting in, however sincere we are about anything that we believe, apart from Jesus Christ who has the key. Christ does not call you to believe in him because he's an elitist. He calls you to believe in him and him alone because he alone dealt with the problem of sin and of death through his cross work where he died in order to remove our guilt for sin. And so here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to say the keys of my righteousness don't work. The keys of my excuses don't work. The key of my hard work and accomplishments and goodwill don't work. The only key that works is the one in Jesus' hand. Because the other thing in Jesus' hand is a hole where he was pierced for me. He has the key. And how do we know that his key actually works? Because Jesus isn't the only one making claims to be the only way. Well, because as he says, I am the holy one, the true one. In the book of Isaiah, which is the background for much of the imagery in this letter, the Lord, Yahweh himself, is called the holy one no less than 20 times. For Jesus here to say, I am the Holy One, is a claim to be Yahweh himself, God the Son. He is the steward of the kingdom of heaven, the only way in, the keeper of the key. He has the power to shut hell out from you and to open heaven up to you. What does he say to this powerless little church in Philadelphia? Verses 8 through 11. And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Hearing Jesus' words on going and staying. Hearing Jesus' words on going and staying. That is, going with the gospel and staying with Christ. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Going and staying. That's what Jesus is looking for in his churches. Look at this church. They didn't feel like the best church in the region. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but you remember they were dead. This church wasn't big, they weren't powerful. Who knows, maybe they were a little disorganized and their programs a little clumsy, whatever. But they seem to have had a measure of insecurity. He speaks to them as powerless, maybe that's how they spoke of themselves. But when Jesus points to a church to say, that's it, imitate those folks, he points to the church at Philadelphia. They're keeping his word, they do not deny his name. But they're tempted too you'll recognize a familiar gang in the neighborhood. Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan in verse 9. Jews in the city would throw Christians under the bus, and some could even be killed. And these days, Jews were exempt from Rome for offering worship to Caesar, and Christians got in on this because Christians identified with roots in Judaism. But in environments where the heat was up, Uh, The Jews in those cities who despised Christians already for what they were doing to their religion uh, would throw them under the bus and lie about them to get them into trouble so that the Christian testimony would not compromise their own exemption from worship to Caesar. Here, Jesus, the true one, says their little synagogue is the synagogue of Satan. They say they are Jews, but they are not, he says. And we've heard that before. We recognize what Paul would say in Romans two, for no one is a Jew who merely is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart, not by spirit, by the spirit, not the letter. Or Romans nine, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There are Jewish people in this town who have rejected their Messiah, which means they're not believing the promises of God. They do not have the faith of Abraham, and so they are not truly the children of Abraham. But this tiny, powerless church, they are the inheritors of the promise because they share in the faith of of Abraham who believed the promise. It may be tempting to view Christianity as merely standing Ground. And this church did a good job of standing ground and not denying the name of Jesus. There is ground to stand. But Jesus calls us to stand our ground in order that we might, shall we say, take ground. Take ground. Jesus sets before them an open door. And if you do a word search for open door in the New Testament, you'll find prayers for opportunity for gospel advance. Staying faithful, it turns out, includes going with the gospel. And having kept Jesus' name, they get to give it away. And in this way, they walk through this open door in their their community, and they become a doorway for their community into heaven itself. We do not stay inside, but go through doors where others are to speak and to show them how Jesus has loved us. There's always a temptation to measure our faithfulness as Christians by the boxes we check or the things that we attend. But it's more than attending meetings Jesus is after, but tending souls and tending neighborhoods and tending friendships. Not tending merely to the roster who enters a building but tending to relationships with people all over the community outside the building. We are a doorway into heaven. And wherever you and I go, look at all of the people in this room. Wherever you and I go, where we are believing the gospel, we are, as it were, extending light from the door of heaven into the lives of the people in our lives. Have you thought of our church like that? A doorway into heaven, a portal into the presence of God. Or like a passageway into a whole other age. Not the building, not the ground here, but you and me. And this happens at our gatherings. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul describes one who joins a gathering of Christians. And he says, he falls on his face and he worships God to declare that God really is among you. And so, as we gather on Sunday mornings, we are aware of the presence of those who are here but don't believe. And maybe that's you this morning. And we pray that you would fall on your face and say, God is among them. God saves people at our gatherings. We're cognizant of that and prayerful for what he might do even as we meet on Sundays together. And yet, we gather to scatter as light in the community. A doorway to heaven. And this is exhilarating. And also, intimidating. I'm sure you can relate with that. It can be for any of us. Take encouragement from Paul, who asked for prayer in Colossians that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He prayed for a door, but he also asked for prayer in Ephesians that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I'm an ambassador in change that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It sounds like he's asking God for help to know what to say sometimes. And also for the boldness to say what he, know, what he knows he ought to say. I can relate with that. So we pray for a door for the gospel. and We also ask one another to pray for the boldness to say what we ought and help from God to know what to say. And that starts with prayer. I take comfort in Paul's prayers right here. So we can be timid when we approach this question of evangelism and sharing the gospel. And why would that be so? It's worth reflecting on this a bit. Uh, Three suggestions. Maybe it's because it it feels hopeless to us. Um, we, We think it won't work. They won't actually believe. And maybe you've tried sharing and praying for somebody, and they haven't believed, and it's been many years. Some people in my life come to mind, and so it feels hopeless or useless. They won't actually believe. Or maybe it feels dangerous, like this is going to cost me too much. Who knows what it could cost you? Or maybe it feels relationally precarious. It'll be awkward. Or maybe they won't like me. And none of us want to put that to words. I don't want to share the gospel because they won't like me. But honestly, for me, that's, that's the biggest one. Uh, if we enter these conversations about deeper spiritual things, it might make it hard to talk about the other easier stuff, and maybe they won't like me. What a trick that Satan would play on us to tempt us with a fear of what they think so that we wouldn't share the gospel. Hopelessness, danger, Relationally precarious, pessimism, persecution, and pride. We could capture it that way. Well, Jesus understands these concerns and he dresses each of them. Did you see it? He puts something at your feet, he puts something around your soul, and he puts something on your head. Let's look down together. First, he puts something at our feet. Verse 9 Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They will know us by our love. They will know that Jesus has loved his people by the way we love one another. This could be could be a promise of vindication. They're lying about you and causing you trouble, but they will come and bow down before you. That could be... Uh, A way of comforting these Christians? I think it's more likely a promise of conversion. He's addressing our pessimism. It's not hopeless. Listen carefully. I'm going to read a few passages from Isaiah's prophecy. Of the nations, here's what Isaiah the Lord says. In Isaiah 45, they shall follow you, they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is with you and there is no other, no God besides him. Isaiah 49, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they'll bow down to you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. And if it doesn't sound totally like conversion, this bowing language, listen to Isaiah 60, a climax of the book, and the conversion of the nations. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. We have in Isaiah this beautiful picture of a coming messianic age, which Jesus brings by the way recognize frankincense and myrrh, Jesus brings this coming messianic age when we see the conversion of men and women from among all the nations. He even describes, and it's absolutely jaw-dropping if you're reading the Old Testament right, that the people of God will be a worshiping community made up of three divisions, Assyrians, Egyptians, and those born of Abraham's line. Wow. A vision of the nations believing. And here, bowing down. I think a sign of their conversion. So here's a big takeaway. God does whatever he wants. And God wants to see men and women converted. Which means there will be men and women for whom you prayed for and shared with the gospel that will believe with us. Which means it will work. I remember a friend from my freshman class. I don't remember his name. We'll call him Mike. Uh, We went away for the summer after freshman and sophomore year, and I left Mike, remembering Mike is one who made fun of me for a see you at the pole bracelet and gave me a hard time. Mark, Mike the partier. Uh, And then in sophomore year, we come back and Mike was just eager to tell me that he'd become a Christian. He got invited to church, went to a youth group, went to camp, he believed in the Lord, and he couldn't wait to let me know. God saved him. Maybe I would never have known, but I held fast his name. You have stories of your own, perhaps. Uh, then this other, this other uh, surprise that I got about five years ago, I was at seminary and bumped into a guy. I think his name was Jesse. He, two states away, he was a tuba player and marching band. And me and my friends uh, testified to the gospel of Christ and prayed for our friends and all of this. And he knew me as a Christian and said, hey, I wanted to tell you I became a Christian and I'm going into ministry. How cool is that? Uh, so much of the, the people that we pray for or witness to, you'll never know what God does. And maybe he does that to keep you faithful to him in spite of what you may see that comes about from it. Be faithful to share the gospel and see what God will do. Here's a takeaway. Don't be pessimistic. Be optimistic. Be optimistic. Hope is not dead because Jesus is not dead, and our friends and loved ones are still alive, and you never know when they will believe the message that you've shared. There's a little church made up of Philadelphians in this passage here, and they came to believe in Jesus, and many of those around them will come to believe, and all that God promised will come to pass. God is saving, and he is saving through the missionaries our church supports, I met with Brooke Ilsley this past week. What a joy to meet her. He's saving through the plants we've planted out from Heritage. Grace Church in Alexandria in the D.C. area is meeting this morning to celebrate 10 years. Congratulations, Heritage. Jonathan Matias is out there. And Mark Vowles and Pete Hansen are there. And Mark Vowles is preaching this morning for that occasion. Celebrating what God has done. He's doing it through neighborhood churches. Brushy Creek Baptist Church, I found out, down the street they got about 40 men and women who come over once a week to Brushy Creek Elementary where I'll be uh, having my kids. And uh, they host Good News Bible Clubs and pray with kids every week. Fantastic. And there are all kinds of things that you're busy with that God is at work through. Even this past week, our corporate witness was evident in some ways. The Movies at the Park event, I showed up just as things were starting. I should have been there earlier. And the friends from our church that we sat with had already met uh, some people in front of him and to the side of them and behind them. And I saw some others from our church over there. And then a gal talking to a police officer. We spread out. And that's great. That's great. Take advantage of these opportunities that are, are uh, put in front of you. And he's also doing it through you individually. Individually. Well, how can we grow in this together? Here are four things we can do to stir up optimism To cultivate a culture of evangelism, we might say, we can pray for an open door, Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Don't get tired of asking God for opportunities. Pray and ask for prayer. There's a danger in a region where Christianity is largely shaped by the culture and the cultural sensitivities of the Christian community shaped the region, there's a danger that Christianity would become about protecting that culture. And I don't mean morality as much as cultural mores. I was visiting with a couple from our church in the past week and got a frighteningly hilarious, if I could say, story. Uh, They'd recently attended a funeral in town. This was a couple years ago, so I think I can tell it. They said I could. Uh, This gentleman's brother... Uh, it was this general gentleman's brother's pastor who was preaching at the funeral. Jimmy was his brother. He preached a short message from Jeremiah, and at the end of the message at the funeral said, You can tell a lot about a man by the people that show up at his funeral. If they have tattoos or cigarettes in their sleeve, you know something's wrong. But if they're dressed up and dressed nice, you know something was right. And then the gentleman that I was speaking with from our church said he went up to that pastor and said, well, I hope you're not at Jimmy's funeral, my brother's funeral, because he's witnessing to and discipling a number of men from his workplace, and they're a little rough. And the man replied, Jimmy does reach out a little too far, doesn't he? Takes your breath away. Friends, I don't know if that man's a Christian. He, he's a missionary for a particular culture. He's not a missionary for the gospel. No gospel minister speaks that way. Shame on him. Missionaries, not for ancient Greek culture, but for 20th century American culture. Pray for a door. Pray for a door for the gospel. Let us be famous For all the different kinds of people we talk with and all the different kinds of people in our community that come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And pray with confidence that God will save. Let me point to you a really awesome irony on the page of this scripture here. Did you notice that the promises in Isaiah are to Abraham's descendants, Israel, that the nations will bow down to them? Have you noticed that In the context of the first century here, this church, which is made up, no doubt, of some Jews and many Gentiles, is being persecuted by the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Jews. And Jesus says they're not actually Jews. So it's actually the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is happening in two ways. On the one hand, the church itself is the redeemed messianic community who believes in the promises of God. And they're being persecuted by the nations, if you will. But even those Jews who are denying Christ and shaking their fist at their Messiah will come to be converted. I take it one day, it's my take, many Jews will come to know the Lord. God orchestrates his plan in ironic and fascinating and surprising ways, precisely in order that his grace might be magnified and to keep us on our toes. All right, so we can pray together. Second, we can partner with others in praying for an open door. And in going through the door, uh, I'm just using uh, passages here where I found open door in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus here. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Uh, Paul prioritized gospel partnerships in all of his gospel work, and he diverted his path to go get his partner. Let me make an application to Christian married couples, if I can. If you're married and you're a Christian, you have a gospel ministry partner. I was blessed recently to be engaging, be hosted actually by a couple in our church recently, where I learned, shockingly, that they're aiming to have 40 occasions of hospitality in the next year. And they recently had 20 people in their house, and they counted that as two. I thought that's fair. 40 occasions of gospel hospitality. They're not winging it. They are serious about being with people and loving them. And I said, well, who are all of these people that are in your house? Oh, people from our shepherding group and, you know, the neighborhood. And, like, some of these people we don't even know. What do you mean you don't know the people that you're having in your house do they get assigned to you? Or they show up? a eh, grocery store, and named a couple other places. see so you bump into someone in the community and invite them over for a meal. I love it. I love it. They're doing a great job. Hospitality is a great way to partner together for the gospel. My point isn't that you need to have 40 occasions of hospitality. It's just to highlight the spirit. The spirit. Third, uh, we can stimulate a culture of evangelism. By prayer, by partnering, and by publicly praising God for what he does. In Acts fourteen twenty seven we read, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Food trends uh, come in seasons, don't they? you got the paleo diet, you've got some other thing, you've got Whole30, whatever. Uh, I'm not making fun of you. Um, I have the pizza diet. Every five years or so, there's new different trends. It's okay to laugh at ourselves for it. Well, how do these things pick up? On the one hand, there are partnerships. People help each other out. But there's a whole lot of praise going on. There's a whole lot of declaring what works and how it worked goes on. There's a whole lot of declaring how good it is that goes on. And so we can praise, one, praise the Lord publicly before one another for God's work. Put on your lips. Don't, don't feel like you're um, showing off if you shared the gospel and you're sharing the gospel. Um, don't hesitate. to. Sp- we need to do more of that. So as you're sharing the gospel and as God is at work, put it on your lips that week a couple times because it's really good for other people. To, it's great for me to hear what God is doing in your life. Don't be bashful. Uh, let's give all glory to God for his work through us. And then fourth, We prepare to go through the open door. Acts 16.5 So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. If you do a little search for strengthened in Acts, you'll see multiple occasions in which the people of God are dispersed throughout the city. They're scattered and then they gather. And when they gather, they're strengthened. They gather to strengthen. And Paul comes to a town to gather the Christians and to strengthen them, to strengthen them to then go out. So prepare, invest a quality of discipleship, though not always may yield a quantity of disciples. It says they were increasing their numbers daily. There are good classes around here. Christianity Explored is one of them. There are some classes on tough questions that we may be asked in the course of evangelism being offered right now. Brent Diedrich and Dan Olinger are putting that together. It sounds excellent. That kind of thing. Maybe you don't feel like it'll work. Don't be pessimistic. When God is optimistic, he promises to save. That's what God will do with our feet. He will bring former unbelievers to bow down, if you will, to worship the Lord and to acknowledge that Jesus has loved us because they've seen it. This is a way of visualizing the conversion of those who hate God the most. They will come and say, I'm a Christian now. Second, so he's put something at our feet. Now he puts something around our soul. And this is addresses another difficulty we have with evangelism. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is a difficulty in Revelation. This may be a trial for this particular church in its time. It may be an end time Judgment. I tend to think it's that. Whatever it is, it puts persecution in perspective. It puts any danger that may come to us in the course of witnessing in perspective. Will Jesus keep us from this or will he keep us through it? That's another question in the commentaries. It's fair. For our purposes at the moment, I'm not sure it matters. All Christians are to expect physical persecution and even potential of death. So if this is a comfort to be spared some kind of terrible judgment, then Jesus has promised you persecution anyways. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can throw both body and soul in hell. He says prepare to die. So every Christian should be prepared for the worst. The important thing is that Jesus keeps us, whether from it or through it. And if that's what it means, then it sounds a whole lot like a whole lot of other promises we've got in our Bible. Jesus will keep us in and through any difficulty we have in this world as his witnesses. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, he gives us something on our head. He puts something on our head. I am coming soon, verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He's addressed our pessimism. It is not hopeless. He's addressed our fear of persecution. It's not ultimately dangerous. And now he addresses our pride. We're often worried about rejection. The fear of man, we might call it. And oh, it may come. I think we would be surprised at how often people are receptive. And yet, we will be rejected at times. Either way, Jesus says, I have accepted you. There is a crown coming which indicates his great and fantastic and matchless approval of his saints. So when you are afraid of what someone else will think, think about what Jesus thinks. And when you want the honor of men, which is so attractive, think of the honor of Jesus. And when we receive that crown and his approval, it will eclipse all else. We will wonder how we wanted anything else than that. So friends, the gospel saves and it will save. Believe this with me. Believe that there are men and women in our neighborhoods and community who will believe if we will share. Pessimism, persecution, and pride. Jesus addresses all three. Now the big promise. The kind of promise that yanks Christians from comfortable lives into very uncomfortable corners of the world. Trusting Jesus' promise to stay forever. Verses 12-13. Verses through 13. The one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Remember the earthquake context. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These promises Jesus made, and especially this one, is a promise for the future and it is a promise which is fuel for mission. Mission. You may be put out of a city, but you will will not be put out of the city to come. And you may be rejected down here, but you will be forever accepted there. Your name won't be etched on a pillar in some physical temple that could be shaken down on this earth. But you will be a pillar of God's very temple. The people of God, the very temple of God himself. No more going and coming out of any city. And there are missionaries who are kicked out of their cities I've met a few. No, we will be forever secure in the city that is God's city, the place of his presence. In the book of Ezekiel, I love the way it ends, there is a vision of this new city, new Jerusalem with a new temple. Ezekiel's vision of this temple and this city is an apocalyptic vision, by the way. When we began our series through Revelation, I said that being taken up on a mountain is one of the little keys that you're dealing with an apocalyptic vision, a symbolic vision. Well, Ezekiel gets a symbolic vision of the age to come in the form of a, an incredible temple structure. And that temple at the end is described this way. In the city. And the name of the city from that time on shall be The Lord is there. In this city, the Lord will never leave, and we will be with him. Greek culture is long gone, and Philadelphia was a failed city in that sense, but there's still a church in that city to this day, actually. Jesus' mission has not failed. Back to Chester Bennington to close things out. The gentleman we began with who recently committed suicide. Here's from a song he wrote called, What I've Done. And you can hear the hopelessness on his lips. And as I read these words, consider that not only did he believe them and felt them, but that there's a market for these words in the men and women around us. Put to rest what you thought of me while I clean this slate. Let mercy come and wash away what I've done. Today this ends, I'm forgiving what I've done. A man who knows he's guilty, wrestling with the demons inside, he might have called it, sin. He didn't ultimately find relief from guilt, obviously. So these lyrics make us sad, sad for the person who wrote them and sad for the market that resonates with them. But they also make me happy and they can make us happy happy that we really do have an answer for men and women who want an answer to the problem of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for the only answer that is in Jesus for sin and death and hell and our guilt and for the new name that he promises us and the place where he will never leave us, that place where we can dwell with him, Because we have the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.